0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Meet and Three is back. We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home. Brooklyn.
0: Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull. It attracted all these different groups.
1: The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority
2: of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are... Trying
1: to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president.
2: That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it.
0: Subscribe to Meetin 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E.
1: Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: This episode is brought to you by the New York Women's Culinary Alliance.
1: This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview a woman in hospitality who inspires me with her courage and compassion, her conviction, and her actions. On today's show, I am thrilled to speak with Gabriella Camara, the owner of two of my favorite restaurants in the world, because she wow. has... One restaurant in San Francisco called Cala, and one in Mexico City called Contramar, which I got the I had the pleasure of visiting just this past October. Today, Netflix is reduce is reducing. That's funny. They're not reducing. No. <laughs> releasing. But today, they're releasing a film about these two restaurants, a documentary called A Tale of Two Kitchens, and she's also the author of a brand new cookbook called My Mexico City Kitchen. So welcome, Gabriela.
2: Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure being here. I
1: am completely fascinated by the way in which you inhabit multiple worlds at the same time. You inhabit Mm -hmm. Mexico and America. Mm -hmm. In your own past, your your parents are um, Mexican and Italian. And so today I want to talk about borders and borderless and the blocks that keep us apart and the things that can bring us together.
2: Mm-hmm. Which, of
1: course, in your life, involve many things. Politics, activism, and food. Yes. So when you were growing up, it seemed that indeed because of your background, mm-hmm. you inherited you this interest in two cultures. Yes. I'd love to hear a little bit about how your, you know, Italian family and Mexican families influenced you and what that felt like to be a a creature of those
2: two places. Um, It felt, I mean, I guess it's the only existence I know, but it always felt both torn and also enriched. It felt nostalgic and it also felt exciting So let's talk about where you Mm -hmm. were
1: living, because Mm -hmm. um, with your family and your parents, you also were sort of outsiders in a place um, that even though it was your own, you were still, because of their passions and their interests, you were a little bit outsiders. So can you take me back to your your childhood and what that place was and what they were
2: doing and how that made you feel? So I, I was born in Chihuahua, where my parents had built a house in the outskirts, in the really slummy part of Chihuahua, in the worst neighborhood, in the, you know, there was nobody of my parents' um, caliber really. Like nobody with their education, nobody with their background lived there. Nobody would, it was not a, a place where pe- people aspired to live. It was a place that people aspired to leave. And why did they choose that as a place to live? Because my father, had this social project there he had this um this this community uh project this clinic school um and my mother when she moved there integrated herself to that part of my life of my father's life which then became my life this life of always being on the lookout for others' needs, always um, being with the underprivileged, always serving communities that were in need of certain aids or in need of attention, always very progressive, very anti-government, very anti-U.S. Um, invasions of the rest of the world and control, very anti-imperialistic in the in the in a very you know 60s 70s. Um, way. I I have very distinct memories of always having these amazing characters come in and out of my house. And, you know, uh, we moved from Chihuahua when I was about three, four years old. And we moved to Mexico City. And then we uh, soon after moved to Teposlan, which is where my brother and I grew up. And Teposlan was a small town. But I remember people from all walks of life and, you know, friends of theirs from graduate school. And, Amazing intellectuals and also immigrants that had nowhere to go. And it was like a, a really wide range of people that I grew up knowing how to relate to. And I feel that that has, of course, enriched me greatly. But it's also when you're growing up, I was, you know, in Chihuahua, we did not belong there, or we were, you know, other kids in our neighborhood. Literally, you know lost teeth because they didn't have enough nutrition. They ate too much sugar They died the mortality rate went um, down when my when my parents uh, put that health center because they would only Tell them, you know to keep on breastfeeding their babies when they were born and to Keep on weighing them and measuring them just as a way of checking if you know if their growth chart was right And they I remember I remember playing with these growth charts and I remember the babies would come into the clinic and they would weigh them and I, you know so it was it was always a part of it was always a very natural I mean, it was always life so I didn't think it was extraordinary but I did realize that we weren't the same as people around us I did realize that we were like the little lawn kids um, then when we moved to Tepoztlan in Tepoztlan uh, most Mexicans or most people who are local are darker skinned and they come from their very proud um Aztec ancestry and I remember my brother and I would always say no we are Mexicans we're just from the north of Mexico which isn't you know isn't even like racially we didn't even belong to the north of Mexico because we were like fairer skinned because my mother was Italian and my father was Mexican but looked Spanish or looks Spanish um in Mexico there's a huge um Racial division that nobody talks about, but it's a very it's it's a huge like there's a there's a very very big racial and class issue that is tied up and has always been combined um, because it's an imperial you know it's a it's it's a colony it's a colonized country. And we still have the sequels of that. And they say that before the Spaniards arrived, the Aztecs were colonizers of everything that was there. And they were also a brutal regime. So we've had this history of, you know, colonized uh, people. So when I think about
1: Mm -hmm. that, the way that you grow up, Mm -hmm. to me telescoping everything, making it very tight and mm-hmm. small, mm-hmm. I see such a direct connection to the restaurant that you opened in San Francisco. Yes. sketch well, a Contramar. Yes. But to Kala, where um, you employed previously incarcerated uh, individuals mm-hmm. and integrated them. I mean, so that it's seamless. It's not like someone, you know, wears a stripe yes. that says... This is where I came from. Yes. I mean, you have a a fundamental belief, it seems, in, you know, that we're all one. Totally. And interestingly, you sort of grew up with the the seeds of that, but Mm -hmm. seeing something quite different. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about why you believed that that would work at Kala as a way to run a restaurant?
2: Because I've always believed that people are worthy. I've, I've always believed in each individual having an intrinsic, worthy part of, you know, being alive is being worthy. And I, ha- you know, I was brought up, I was raised to consider everybody capable and equally important. And I do think that for example, it's something that I had done in Contramar, because in restaurants, one of the things that that you know why why I did why I why I chose to use this hiring uh, practice in 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 calas is because restaurants have always been places where social mobility can happen, and you don't need a, a career, you don't need to be university trained to be a server. You need many things. No not everybody can be a, a good server, but you need you do not need like an academic training. So I think that in that in that, you know, in that in this world of restaurants, I found a very good place to integrate different interests of mine and also to have a, a different a very varied audience and a very varied group of people or very different groups of people that I had to integrate in one space. And that's one of the things that fascinated me about restaurants from the beginning. And when what I, are the different groups? So, you know, you have like hard working class um, people who come from the bottom up, many times from bad backgrounds, many times from incarceration, many times from, you know, past crimes that they have overcome or have you know served time for or um, addictions that they have really overcome or addictions that they overcome while they work with us um,
1: or. Um, I thought that was one of the beautiful things in the film mm-hmm. you know in a, a contramar mm-hmm. there's a gm i think mm-hmm. who says oh. um, who says people come and if they have addictions we work them through it we don't say you know oh my gosh you're I done know. it's a it's a place of second chances and um, at Kala, the thing that moved me the most in in the film was the the server who was applying for a job, and he, you know, was having a great interview with um, Emma, uh-huh. and he said, "I just need to tell you something." And they're like, "Oh no! Like, what is this going to be? Uh-huh. You, you know, I yeah. I have ten children. I I can't move from yeah, yeah, o- yeah. Ohio." And it was like, "I've been in you know incarcerated for the last thirty years," and they're like, "So? Uh-huh. I mean, the." freedom of that, but also taking care of people as they go through this. Just addiction, if it comes, seems
2: I think, you know, restaurants are places where you take care of people. You take care of your guests. But I believe that true successful restaurants take care of each person who's a part of the restaurant. And that's how you begin. That's how you can take care of others. Because you can take care of yourself. You can take care of your um, colleagues. You can take care of or your purveyors, you can take care of everything that you put, you know, you, you, you care for everything in your restaurant. And that's how it becomes a relevant or good restaurant. And then of course you care for your guests. You do it all because you need, you you want it to be successful, Mm -hmm. but you need to care for, for people. And I believe that in dealing, I mean, in, in restaurants, you end up always dealing with people who have really serious issues Mm -hmm. that, most likely have not been resolved and if they have been it's great but many times they haven't so many times I find myself uh, with people who ask me like why I know so much about the 12 steps of um, alcoholism um, uh, addiction, addiction recovery problems. yeah Programs. and you know like why do you know the 12-step program so well like because I've gone through it with so many employees I mean not that I've gone through it but it's always it's always important for somebody to overcome an addiction, it's always important for them to have a good support, not a co-dependent relationship, but good support. And I've learned how to do that. And I've learned by learning about how difficult it is to overcome these addictions. And and I guess the only thing I can provide for the staff that works in my restaurants is a really good environment where they feel safe. And in San Francisco, the the I think the the real genius behind this hiring program was Emma because she had been she was aware of she had worked at a Remind me prison, her last name Emma Rosenbush right. she was my assistant and she was moving back to San Francisco after having spent uh, a few years in Mexico City where I met her and when she learned that I was going to go live in San Francisco she asked me if she could work with me and we started looking at spaces together and it was just such a joy to work with Emma from the beginning but uh, she's an incredible human being I adore her she, like, we've become family but Emma, one of the things I mean, and she knew Contramar, and she really admired Contramar, and I think she really admired this part of Contramar of being so. Of course, it's an amazing restaurant to where everybody, you know, everybody who's important or famous is attracted to go to Contramar. But actually, the attention, if you if you if you scratch a little bit, you go a little bit deeper. You realize that everybody in the restaurant is actually being really well taken care of and when we don't do that i feel that we have failed terribly but as a team that's our most important mission and when when i was you know okay let's do this restaurant yes let's do a restaurant in san francisco but there's space for it i found that as much mexican food as they have in san francisco in northern in california in general i really found a space for something that they didn't have but my biggest concern was staffing and i thought who am i who are we going to find that will actually appreciate the job because in my experience the only servers or the only cooks or the only people that you want working with you are people who really want to be with you and who really will appreciate what you can offer them or what you know the place can offer so i thought okay we don't want to do a, a a place where tipping is done the conventional way because we want to be able to pay our staff a living wage we want to be able to provide them with medical care throughout you know the back of house front of house in mexico everybody is it's it's a legal obligation to give everybody medical um coverage but here in the united states it's optional so i was i was totally i was that from the beginning i was i was very sort of Firm on wanting to give everybody medical coverage for that, we needed to make a sort of a, a you know a, a shared tip pool and or a service charge that would include that. And also, you do want the tips because the tips incentivize people because actually people work for money and it's perfectly it's legitimate. I mean, it's totally fair. People work because they need money. We need to live in 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 material. Uh, Conditions that imply having money. Unfortunately, this world is ruled by money. Money. So you were mentioning so, the difference. No, so just 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 to, just to finish. Mm-hmm. So when when Emma mentioned, you know, when she, when she said, like, would you be willing to work with actually with with programs that are more like city organized programs uh, in terms of recovering addicts or people who have been previously incarcerated to you know they have all these programs and incentives for lowering recidivism levels and i was i was very enthusiastic from the beginning I, you know i was a little bit adamant about the progress but then we started looking into it and they, we were really really into it from the beginning and it was just sort of a survival tool also but anyways so you were talking about
1: um, the difference between Mexico and America, the way that workers are treated. or I mean, in your case, it's restaurant workers. But you are quite the bridge between... Um, Mexico and the U.S. You live in both places, and you're about to go back to Mexico yes, um, because the president has asked you to do something.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) I'm not entirely clear on what that is. Me neither. Um, But I wonder, at this incredibly tense time between the two countries, and you are skilled, as we've been talking about, um, creating bridges through your deep, sort of empathy and understanding. What do you feel like you can bring to the president um, if it's, you know, related to Mexico and the U.S.? And maybe it's not.
2: No, I feel, I mean, I even felt when he when he said, I'm going to need you back in Mexico when I win, I thought, I mean, first of all, and I always say this, first of all, I, I, I was very skeptical of his winning because they had already taken two elections from him. So I was very, I was just skeptical. And as he said, you know, this time unfortunately I am going to win because they don't even know what they don't. The country is in such poor shape that they don't know what to do with it. But uh, and and they're going to let me be president now that it's that everything is, you know, in ashes. So, in in um, to to him, I would always say there's so many Mexicans in California, specifically, you know, in the United States in general, but but specifically in California, I feel very connected to that um, Mexican-ness of mine. And I think in general in the food industry, there's no restaurant that doesn't have Mexican workers in the United States. It's really, whether they're legal, illegal, or however they are, I don't know if there are restaurants that have no Mexican workers. I would be very interested. Every chef and every person that I've asked has confirmed that they have a Mexican part of the team at least. And this country, I mean, it's twenty five percent of the population, and it's the fastest growing. So there's, there's, uh, I, I would always. So my argument to him was that here I could do a lot for Mexicans. And yes, and he's totally aware of that. And in California, we fortunately now have a great governor, who is very aware of this as well, and 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 is all for making bridges, not building walls and burning bridges. And I am just
1: you know, wondering what bridge you would like to build. I would, like I what would, would like, you like to do?
2: I would like okay, so if I if I'm gonna go to Mexico where I think I can help the president more directly, I think I would love to to help in in creating food policies or food education and health related issues that, that can be improved greatly with food that have affected the population in Mexico and here. Unfortunately, the the Mexican population in the United States is one of the worst nourished populations. They have all these sicknesses related to overeating and eating junk food, and um, I would really love to, to to do something that has to do with food just because that's what I'm very passionate about. But I also feel that, you know, if, if for a time it was discussed whether a more specific role in the United States would be a possibility, but I don't really have political ambitions. I mean, I I, I, I really don't. So I don't want to be an ambassador. I don't want to be a consul. I don't want to... So there was no actual position here that I could take. And so I was appointed to direct this board, to, to, you know, to be the director of this board that um, was established to promote tourism for mexico and i i you know you that disbanded board, the board uh, yes i thought that I was did.
1: an amazingly
2: brave and fascinating uh choice which is when the president said well and then now you're gonna have to be my advisor I'm like, your advisor on what on tourism and food no on everything so we'll see okay we'll see how that works out With that, we're going to take
1: a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more deeply about food, recipes, cookbooks, and how to replicate some of the incredible dishes from Contremar. Be right back.
2: This episode is brought to you by the New York Women's Culinary Alliance, a vibrant and supportive community of professional women who work in all areas of the food, beverage, and hospitality worlds, and come together to network, learn, and share their passion. Membership is only open once a year, every spring, so now is the time to join. The deadline is Friday, May 31st. Visit nywca.org for more details.
1: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to hear this conversation with my extraordinary guest, Gabriela Camara, who has just published a beautiful and delicious cookbook called My Mexico City Kitchen. You didn't grow up uh, you know, in a family of cooks it doesn't seem. I mean, your mother had no interest at all, and you took it upon yourself to at least learn how to make a tortilla. Yes. It's a
2: very, very important skill at yes. seven years old. Yes. And making tortillas is difficult. Making tortillas is challenging. They seem very easy, but they're challenging. You need to really know what you're doing, and then also you need to be just there. Yeah. It's very labor-consuming. I'm Curious, the, the Or cook- labor intense. The the cookbook
1: has lots of recipes that actually seem pretty quick and easy. Yes. And the restaurants, like one of the reasons I love Contramara so much, the food is clean, simple, ingredient-driven, Mexican, direct, and completely delicious. And then of course I love the I love the dressed-up waiters and I love the energy and all of that. Yes. But the cookbook brings together some of the the salsas and the drinks and the main courses, and they seem very doable to me. And I think that's partly because you love home cooking. Yes. And you brought that notion of home cooking to the restaurants, but then also the cookbook. And I'm just, like, tell me about that. Like, how did
2: your love for home cooking evolved knowing that you had a mom who's like, no thanks. I mean, she was no thanks, but she loves to eat well and she always did things. Okay. And my father was a great cook too. So the two of them sort of shared that responsibility. It was very uncommon in Mexico to have the father figure collaborate in anything that had to do with domestic duties, quote unquote. So in my house, that was off as well. Like everybody in (laughs) the was, what do you mean your father made breakfast for you? Your father makes breakfast? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great, which was just, it was just, it, it isn't that other men weren't doing that at the time, but it was just in that context of a small town in Mexico that just is not what men would be doing. So, but I did grow up eating amazing home cook, home cooking, home food, sorry. I grew up with a grandmother who was an extraordinary cook. I grew up with another grandmother that was an extraordinary cook, even though she died when I was six years old, my aunt's. Were incredible, like just they still are incredible heirs of that tradition of cooking good food and making sure that that was sort of a binding glue of family life.
1: I love that notion that cooking grounds you, that you can Mm -hmm. be anywhere Mm -hmm. and you're grounded by Mm -hmm. the food that you cook.
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. And I've discovered that by, um, Living in different places. And I also love to eat whatever is from where I am. Not only like the nostalgic part of cooking Mexican when I was in Florence. Because I love food in Florence when I'm in Florence. I don't even crave like this chamoy or tamarind spicy sweets that in Mexico I could have all day. In in I remember bringing them to Italy or having somebody bring them to me thinking that I would really appreciate them and i was you know actually i just want nutella dabbed on bread or i want olive oil and, and bread for a snack in the afternoon or you know i remember they would give us that for a snack at school when you know the mid afternoon break like a loaf of of um a little a little bun with with nutella or with olive oil and i didn't even have a craving for the mexican flavors but i do think that food Especially full meals really do ground you, and I do believe i mean and it's a it's a characteristic of every culture that you know when they migrate they bring their food. Food is something that can travel with you, and you might not have you know your house your landscape your but you if you have some of your food then it's it gives you that identity and I believe that um Unfortunately, in my case, migration has always been uh, voluntary, Mm -hmm. voluntary, voluntary. But and that, I think, is a huge difference. Uh, But I do you know, it makes you appreciate where you are much more, I think, in a way. Also, not I mean, not that the other type of migration doesn't make you appreciate where you are, but it's just very different. Um, I think that uh, that. That for me, knowing how to make certain recipes of my grandmothers or of my family was even more important than what ingredients or, or or where the dish came from. It was just from them. It was just, it's part of being a family. And I want Luca as my son to know that these cookies I made with this grandmother or this was something that my other grandmother loved eating or this is something that we've always um, had like this at the house. My father used to make it this way or my brother and I would wake up in the morning and make these pancakes or this French toast or this egg. And I just feel that food is something that that you transmit from, you know, it goes from one generation to the next in a really concrete way.
1: So let's just take a generational yes. tour. Yes. Um, so you had these powerful grandmothers in your uh-huh. life. What, when you think of them, like, what is the dish that's in this cookbook that really makes you think, like, that is my grandmother, that's
2: my... So my, my my paternal grandmother, Doña Concha, who was from Campeche, was very well known for her food and for her humongous banquets. Like, she would cook for a lot of people, and she was always very generous, and she was always very... You know, anybody could come to her house at lunchtime, and she would make sure that they were fed. And I love that everybody tells me that I am very much like her, because she died when I was six, and I remember her, but I didn't get to actually spend, you know, like relevant time of my cooking, learning years with her. Um, I, I, I think of her with a pipi pipipollo. pipipollo, which is this humongous tamal that is done in the southeast of Mexico, and it has achiote, and it's in a uh, banana leaf. And then what do I think of with Nona? My grandmother, my Italian grandmother, uh, my maternal grandmother, I cooked with everything. Um. so I, I think of her with so many dishes that actually aren't on this cookbook just because some of them aren't Mexican enough but I feel you know I feel that every I, I what, what 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 I have in this book that is very much from her is this very attentive careful non-wasteful approach to food and, and certain it- like basic things like stocks or the way to cook beans or uh, chickpeas or lentils or uh. what about your son Luca? He's in the book. Yes, beautiful. Lucas. About, yes, blonde.
1: Um, and what do you cook with him? Or what's you know in this book? Like, this is the recipe that he would just
2: gravitate toward. that says family to him. I think he's very proud of knowing how to make tortillas as well, but he's very proud of knowing how to make pasta. And he makes pasta with my father and my father isn't italian but he was the pasta maker always i don't know why i think he's he loves manual things he loves working with his hands so when we were growing up my brother was a, was not as good an eater as i was and it wasn't that he didn't eat everything he was just lazy and he would say that he would always say oh i don't want to eat a steak it's so it takes so long and he would want to eat pasta all day and we were you know in that time in Mexico, you could not find good pasta. So my parents took it on themselves, took it upon themselves to make good pasta with eggs. So we brought this machine from Italy and we, well, we had the manual machine. But then when there was this mechanic machine, we brought it, um, an electric pasta maker. I remember the, the excitement about it. And um, I, you know, I, we, we've always... We've always I think Lucas I think Lucas is very proud of just doing anything and participating in the cooking process. And I think that's also the way I feel towards food and towards family gatherings. It's always about what you're making, it's always about what you're gonna eat and then when you're eating it, it's always about what you're gonna eat next and how you're gonna <laughs> Well, speaking of um, eating next,
1: the the Closing question of the show is to pay it forward because I love highlighting women who aren't, aren't as well known as some of my guests and to put a spotlight on them. So who would you pay it forward to? A, a woman in the world of food who you admire very much and
2: why? Mm, and somebody who's not that well known? I mean, take your pick. But mm, I admire... The woman who makes staff meal at Contramar every day. And she's also the woman who makes the tortillas. And that position has always been together. And she's just. What's her name? Lupita. And she's been there for so long. And she's just extraordinary. And she's such a good cook.
1: That's great. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining me on Speaking Broadly today. It's uh, such a pleasure to hold and cook from your book and to experience your restaurants and then i can't wait to see what you do for food policy in mexico america and beyond so thank you so much for joining thank me
2: you. i'm also i'm going to keep on doing restaurants oh been great look yeah. forward to those in yes. the future <laughs> thank um,
1: you everybody knows where to find me um at speaking broadly on instagram and where can people find you Gabriela
2: at Gabriela Cámara.
1: That's it. Thanks um, for my engineer today and Nita Medvitskaya for being my co producer. And come on back next week. Have a great week.
2: Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio
1: supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter.